0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Nice to get a hand before you do anything.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They'll boo us off in 10
0: minutes. (laughs) I think it'll take longer to wear out our welcome. As they say in the age of the Internet, I've done my research. I read the book. Welcome to today's Commonwealth Club program. I'm Ray Suarez, the host of KQED's On Shifting Ground, and let's get started. David Brooks is one of the country's leading sociopolitical writers and commentators for the past 20 years. He's been an op-ed columnist for The New York Times. David also writes for The Atlantic and appears regularly on the PBS NewsHour. I'd like to share a quote from David that reflects the issues he addresses in his work. America is fractured and living in a quiet crisis of disconnection. We've lost our trust in each other and in our institutions. Divided, we face uncertainty, social turmoil, and political gridlock. Yet, within every community lies an answer. The book is How to Know a Person, the Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. And the Commonwealth Club did a very crafty thing. They invited someone who knows David, <laughs> but not really well, <laughs> to do the interview. So it's like the perfect sweet spot of this book and what it really asks you to think about in the relationships that you manage in your life. And David, early in the book, you make well, kind of a bold claim. I'm hoping this book will help you adopt a different posture toward other people. At once, a sort of modest and at the same time, tall order. <laughs> Can it do that? Is it, a, is it that kind of handbook?
1: Uh, it's meant to be helpful to people. It was helpful to me. Um, Ray and I Did All Things Considered together for a number of years. We did the News Hour together. We grew up in New York at the same time. Uh, So Ray actually does know uh, the old me. (laughs) I'm totally different now. I'm a much better person. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And so in the book, I start the book by saying, if you've watched that movie, Fiddler on the Roof, know how warm and huggy Jewish families can be. All these dancing, filled with music. I come from the other kind of Jewish family. And so the phrase in our culture was, act British, think Yiddish. And so we were stiff upper lip and kind of emotionally reserved. And there was a moment in my life that happened maybe 10 years ago, which symbolizes for me a way of being. And so I'm a big baseball fan, and I've been to thousands of games, and all that time I've never caught a foul ball. So I'm at a game in Baltimore with my youngest son, and a batter loses control of the bat, it flies into the stands, and it lands at my feet. Uh, and, uh, catching a bat is a thousand times better than getting a ball. <laughs> and so any normal human being would be like jumping up and down, holding his trophy in the air, uh, getting on the jumbotron, hugging everybody. I put the bat on my feet and I stood, stared straight ahead. <laughs> I essentially had the emotional reaction of a turtle. <laughs> and so that symbolizes me one way of being. And I decided that's inadequate. If I cut myself off from emotion, if I cut myself off from intimacy, I've cut myself off from, like, really deep friendships. I've cut myself off from deep relationships. I've cut myself off from life itself. And so I wrote a whole series of books that were a to of a journey to become a better person. And I wrote a book called The Social Animal. I wrote a book about emotion because intellectual, I'm not going to experience emotion, but I'll write a book about them. <laughs> uh, and then I'll, I wrote a book called The Road to Character about character formation And I learned that writing a book on character doesn't give you good character. And even reading a book on character doesn't give you good character. But buying a book on character does give you good character. So I recommend that. And then I wrote this book on really how to really be intimately involved with other people and how to see them, how to understand the people around you. And it, it sort of worked, and I can prove it to you, but I have to do name dropping. So I've been interviewed by Oprah twice in my life. And after the second interview, she says to me, David, I've never seen anybody change in middle age so much before. You were so emotionally blocked before. And so that was a good moment for me. It shows growth. And I'm hoping at the end of the interview, Ray comes up to me and says, I just want to give you a big hug and a kiss. (laughs) We got an hour. We got an hour. We're going to work on this.
0: Well, it may be that you've just never heard the quite often used phrase in our culture, think Puerto Rican and act British.
1: It, <laughs>
0: the disadvantage it, being it doesn't, doesn't rhyme. rhyme. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> the quote I read earlier, I think gives us a, a look at part of your diagnosis. This is a, a book that's responding to things that you're looking at the landscape and seeing are wrong with the human condition in this country, in this culture, in this era. The nature of our shared malady. I want you to flesh out that diagnosis yeah. a little bit more so people understand why you felt called, and I, yeah. I use that word advisedly, yeah. to offer this other way, yeah. this other road. For
1: yeah, I called is a good word. So I just described the personal reason to write the book, just like we writers are working out our stuff in public. And I just want to become a better person, understand the people around them, me, and make them feel respected. But there's also a social and, frankly, a patriotic reason for the book. And that is, over the last 23 years or so, something crazy and terrible has happened to American society. Rising depression, rising suicide rate. Suicide rates up by a third, up by 60% for teenage girls. The number of Americans who say no one knows them well is 54%. The number of Americans involved in a romantic relationship is down by a third. The statistic that gets me is that the number of Americans who say they have no close personal friends has gone up by fourfold since 2000. So this is just a lot of loneliness, a lot of separation, a lot of heartbreak. And when you leave people feeling invisible, there's nothing crueler than to not see someone, to make them feel you don't see them. And there's a beautiful passage in the first page of Ralph Ellison's novel, Invisible Man, Where the nameless narrator says, when people look at me, they see everything but me. They look around, they see my backgrounds, they see their stereotypes of me, but they don't see me. And I want to show that I exist, so I want to lash out with my fists. And if you feel invisible, it feels like an injustice, which it is, and you want to lash out. And so the sadness in our society of aloneness has led to a crisis of meanness, hate crimes, gun violence, our politics. And so I find myself surrounded by just an epidemic of blindness, of people feeling unseen. And it underscores a lot of the problems of our democracy. It's very hard to build a healthy democracy on top of a rotting society. And so I figure, what's the most aggressive way to fight this crisis of disconnection? And to me, it's to give people the skills to know how to build connection, starting from the first second you meet someone to just hanging out, to having really good conversations, to asking really good questions, to sitting with someone who's suffering, to confronting someone across political and racial and other kinds of divides. And so I just try to walk people through the phases of here's how you build connection. And maybe if we all do that a little more. Society won't be so sad and mean.
0: But one of the things that I kept coming back to, those statistics you quoted are heartbreaking, really. But these are all things that we used to think happened organically. You didn't need a book to advise you on how to be friends with your friends, to have romantic relationships in in middle and and later life. Just the idea that we have to somehow be re-schooled in this speaks to something so horrifying scary really
1: yeah and i confess i don't completely understand what's caused all this uh, i can i can tell you a lot of stories that i think each have some validity there's a social media story which is we don't connect because we're on our phones all the time there's a sociology story which is we're not as involved in civic organizations as we used to be so we're not learning relationships across class and racial differences i have a weird theory that i, I have no evidence for i think more people used to grow up in extended families And you had to deal with your crazy aunt so-and-so and and your crazy uncle so-and-so. And And you just learned those skills because you were just surrounded by a lot of people. Uh, There's also an economic story. Economic inequality has widened. But the one story that I focus on is what you might call the moral formation story. That we used to have a lot of morally formative institutions, whether it was churches, synagogues, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, and they taught people moral formation, which is a pompous way of saying three things. One... How to restrain your natural selfishness. Two, how to find a purpose in life so you know what your life is all about. And three, how to be considerate toward others in the concrete circumstances of life. And so these are very concrete social skills how to argue well, how to ask for and offer forgiveness, how to end a conversation gracefully, how to break up with somebody without crushing their heart, how to host a dinner party so everybody feels included. These are just skills. And for a lot of different reasons, I find people our age and especially younger people just don't know it. And, you know, I was talking to my students, uh, college age, and one of the most troubling statistics to me is if you ask people two generations ago, do you trust your neighbors? 60% of Americans said, yeah, my neighbors are trustworthy. Now it's 30% and 19% of millennials and Gen Z. And so the younger you go, the more distrusting you are. And so I would ask my classes, like, what's going on with you people? And they would point to some of the big things that they've lived through, which are not great. But one woman came up to me after class and said, I've had four boyfriends in my life. All four of them ghosted me at the end. Like, they didn't have the consideration, you know, I think this isn't working for us. We need to break up. They just vanished. And so, of course, she thinks the fifth boyfriend is going to ghost her again. The inability to have these social skills to do the basic social things of life and you know, we're so old, I bet, you know, we asked people out on dates in high school. You sort of had to work up your courage and do the thing. <laughs> and then, in my case, crawled my tail between my legs when she said no. But uh, <laughs> but the, the study I saw in the last couple of weeks was the number of guys who've never asked anybody out on a date ever is super high, and they wanted to know why, and they lack the skills. They stink at flirting. They just don't have a clue. And so now, as you say, we have to teach the stuff that somehow was In the air before?
0: There are, it seems to me, levels, gradations. You know, you talk about being known and how important that is to people. I grew up on the other side of a a river from David. And the weird thing about it is it's not really a river, it's an estuary. But that's for another day. Is that true? Yeah, the East River is not a river.
1: Wow. See?
0: And uh, on my side of the river, in a dense, polyglot, crowded neighborhood, one of the most confirming and terrifying things that people could say to you was, when we were kidding around, when we were being pains in the ass, they could say, I know where you live. Uh, And suddenly... You are an actual person that's in a context of all this string of relationships or I know your mother. Yeah. (laughs) And you are not some strange person who comes from nowhere and knows no one and doesn't belong here. But you are a person with a place and a name and a string of relationships. The ladies who would lean out their windows in the apartment buildings and say that to me, we never talked about being seen and feeling yeah. seen, mm-hmm. but I did feel known because that was a different gradation on the, I don't yeah. know if whether it's concentric circles or, or yeah. what that gives you context too, doesn't yeah.
1: it? Yeah. First I want to clear up any notion that I grew up in some privileged Manhattan life. <laughs> I grew up in a place called Sives I got in there because my grandfather was a lawyer for corrupt city officials who got us an apartment. Uh, and, <laughs> and and so we had two sorts of people. We were the rare Jew, but everyone else was Irish Catholic or Puerto Rican Catholic. So that was the world I knew, Irish Catholic, Puerto Rican Catholic, and one Jew. It was like the Supreme Court now. Uh, <laughs> but we had the same, I mean, it was that sense of being rooted in a social atmosphere where people were going to know you was Probably not as strong as where you were growing up, but it was there. There's a great book I recommend about Chicago, neighborhoods in Chicago, and it's called The Lost City. And it's about all the different ethnic neighborhoods in Chicago in the 1950s. They didn't have TVs. They didn't have air conditioning back then. So the doors were all open and kids were running to everybody's houses and raiding each other's refrigerator. And it was tight. And it was tight in part because of discrimination, because if you had a certain accent, you couldn't get a job downtown in Chicago as we society became more fair, a lot of the density of those neighborhoods dispersed because you now had people had greater movement and greater opportunity. So I would not want to go back to Chicago in the fifties, but we have definitely lost something. And so I go around the country traveling around and I ask people, I, I would say one of the problems with America is we don't know our eight closest neighbors anymore. And in most places I go, people nod. I said that at a dinner with folks from New Orleans, and they looked at me oddly. They were like, what are you talking about? We all know our neighbors. <laughs> and so there are places in this country where that still exists. And I would say further, there are places where it can be built. And so I have a friend who says, I practice aggressive friendship. I'm the person in a neighborhood who invites everybody over. And I started this little nonprofit years ago called Weave the Social Fabric, which was honoring people who do that sort of thing. And we met a lady in Florida who, when we met her, she was in the process of helping the kids uh, leave the elementary school after school, just across the street. And we asked her, uh, do you have time to volunteer in your neighborhood? She said, no, I have no time to do that. And we say, are you getting paid for this? And she says, no, I just help the kids across the street. And they said, what are you doing the rest of the day? And she says, well, on Thursdays, I take food to the hospital so the people there will have some nice food to eat. We said, do you have time to volunteer? She said, no, I have no time to volunteer. And to her, this was not volunteering. This is just what neighbors do. And so the norm of what a neighbor is in the neighborhood you probably grew up in was probably different than it is today. And the one norm that I think is a crucial one, tell me if this was true in your neighborhood, was that other adults could discipline you when your parents weren't there. You bet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was part of the context in which they would remind me that they knew my mother. Yeah, absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. It was not only considered the done thing it was considered the necessary thing to sort of keep order yeah. in the uh, in crazy crazy streets again and again you come back to the proposition that as you put it the ability to understand what another person is going through is an important skill again are there gradations do you always have to fully understand and inhabit it or is just the willingness to understand a good opening gambit
1: on that? Yeah. So I have this dualism in the book. About once a decade, I give myself permission to do a dualism. And so in the book, I have this dualism between illuminators and diminishers and diminishers are people who make you feel small. They're not curious about you. They stereotype and they ignore you and they diminish. And I sometimes leave a party and I think, you know, that whole time, nobody asked me a single question. And I've come to believe that only about 30% of humans are question askers. The rest are nice, but they're just not curious. They're not question askers. And so that's diminishing behavior. Illuminating behavior is the ability to really make somebody feel respected, seen, and understood. Like, that person gets a little of my point of view. I have lots of stories about illuminators. One of them I like telling is about Jenny Jerome, who would later go on to become Winston Churchill's mom. But when she was a young woman... She was seated right night in Victorian England at a dinner, and she was seated next to William Gladstone, the prime minister. And she left that dinner thinking that Gladstone was the cleverest person in England. And then a couple of weeks later, she's seated at another dinner, and she happens to be seated next to Benjamin Disraeli, who was Gladstone's great political rival. And she left that dinner thinking that she was the cleverest person in England. <laughs> and so it's good to be Gladstone, better to be Disraeli. And that's a process of asking people where they're from, like asking big questions... And making them feel, you see the world. That person sees the world. They know how I see the world. And none of us are as good at this as we think we are. And so there's this guy at the University of Texas who studies people. And when we meet a stranger, we accurately understand what that other person is thinking only about 20% of the time. Some people are 50% they are good and some people are not. And the sad statistic that I'm not sure I believe this from his research is that for some couples, the longer they're married, the more they misunderstand each other because they form a model of who this other person is early in the marriage, and then the other person changes, and they haven't updated their model. And my experience has been, you're never going to fully understand another human being. Every person you meet is a mystery you'll never get to the bottom of. But even if you show a little bit of understanding, just a little bit, it really makes a big impact. And so I had a a buddy who, he told me his seven-year-old daughter was struggling in school, and the teacher says to her one day, you know, you're really good at thinking before you speak. And that one comment turned the girl's whole year around because she thought, the thing I think is a weakness, my awkwardness, she sees as my strength. And so she just felt seen by her. And when I heard that story, I, I, um, I was reminded of my 11th grade English teacher, Mrs. Dusenap, who once I made some smart-ass comment in class, and she says, David, you're trying to get by on glibness, stop it on the other hand, I was humiliated in front of the whole class. On the other hand, I thought, wow, she really gets me. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I'm so honored. Uh, and so my point is... Get by. It's a living. It's been a living for me, yeah. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> and so my experience is you don't have to really know somebody the way Robert Cairo knows Lyndon Johnson. You don't have to get that deep. But any bit, people, people are so grateful.
0: But still, it demands a kind of openness... Openness of the self, but also openness to others that in the context of your earlier diagnosis can feel risky yeah. once you're out of the habit, once it's no longer that organic thing that it seems like we used to know how to do. Expecting that empathy is a lot to ask If you're not willing to extend the same, isn't it?
1: Yeah. There's a great quote from Frederick Buechner. I can't remember if I put it in the book, which is the thing we want most is to be understood in our full being. The thing we fear most is to be understood in our full being. (laughs) And so that's in normal times. Now we live in times of brutality, where if you reveal vulnerability, there's a great chance that somebody will exploit it. And so trust is the ability to, my ability to reveal vulnerability to you and you do not exploit it. That's what trust is. And so people say, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And so in some cases, I wouldn't counsel you to be vulnerable. Like Twitter, don't go on Twitter and be vulnerable. That'd be bad. (laughs) But my argument is that it's still worth it to lead with trust, to lead with curiosity, to lead with vulnerability. And some people are going to betray you but most of the time, you will call forth a version of that person that is better and different than that you would have had if you'd led with distrust. And most of the time, if you fall on people and trust them, they will hold you up. And to be a decent human being is to have that kind of empathy. I heard a story from this guy, Rabbi Elliot Kukla, who had a patient who's, who had a brain injury, and she sometimes fell to the floor. And she said, when I fall to the floor people immediately want to grab me and pull me up because people are so uncomfortable with seeing an adult on the floor. And she said, what I really need at that moment is for somebody to get down on the floor with me and just sit there. And so to be a decent human being, it's not not doing what would make me feel comfortable. It's doing what would make the other person feel comfortable. So it's getting down on the floor. And I think that's just an ideal we should all live through, even in hard times. And just finally, I, I was at a bar late at night while I was traveling around talking about this book and I'm doom scrolling through Twitter. I'm looking at all these images from the Middle East. It's just one horrible thing after another. And I come across a video that James Baldwin gave an interview. And Baldwin says, you know, there's not as much humanity as one would like, but there's more than you would think and there's enough. And he says, every time you walk down the street and look at people, just remember that could be you. You could be that person. And that little video, and Baldwin had to face a lot of stuff in his life because of injustice of this world. But he was still a defiant humanist, even in the face of it all. And so to me, that's a model. To be a defiant humanist is to insist on empathy, to lead with respect, to lead with curiosity, even though you're going to get blowback some of the time.
0: Well, I would have loved to see what he would have said about today's snarly time. Yeah. Because that's, that's the word I keep coming back to. We talk to each other with a snarl with that. And as a result, a lot of people are always on defense. It's hard to achieve this openness that you're trying to remind us the value of, because everybody's in a defensive crouch.
1: But but let me ask you, so we we get the same we get a lot of public reaction to stuff we've done. When I first got the Times job, which was twenty years ago, they used to put the email on the bottom of the column. After six months on the job I looked at my email folder, and there are two hundred ninety thousand emails. And the core message was, "Paul Krugman is great, you suck." That was the core message. Uh, and the emails were—I so, would like feel obligated to read them, and they were so effectively vicious. I would—they would really hurt me. Uh, and, but, and so I stopped reading them. I made my assistant read them, and then he got depressed. And so, uh, and but I have found that if somebody writes you, no matter how nasty and you write them back something respectfully, showing you're a human being at the other end, 90% of the time, immediate change of tone.
0: They are utterly disarmed by that act. Yeah. But I always wonder in the first instance about what it took. Now, your email was right at the bottom of the column, so if it's an impulse buy, (laughs) in effect, they can right away dash you off their thoughts, which can be a problem. But I sometimes used to think this person found out where to write me, thought about what they wanted to say, and said this. (laughs) Like, who would bother? (laughs) I tried to get inside the head of someone who would actually take the time to be this mean. (laughs) (laughs) And and that actually helped me deal with it, I think. Uh, Sometimes people would find my heel that didn't get dropped dipped in the river lathe and they'd get me <laughs> but most of the times I think what a nut <laughs> I mean one person when I was working at the news hour by the time I was at, in the middle of my years at the news hour I'd been in the business for 25 years covered stories all over the world everywhere in the country and somebody wrote to me that I was nothing but an affirmative action hire <laughs> And that was one of those moments I thought, how many years, 35, 45, will I deserve to be in this newsroom in the eyes of a guy like this? And when I probably realized there is no number, there is no number of years that will make him see me as someone who's Mm -hmm. earned his bones, then I didn't bother so much. That was on him, no longer on me.
1: Yeah. But let me, let me ask you another question about our profession, but I think this, uh, this applies to everybody in this room. So I interviewed for this book a guy named Dan McAdams who teaches at Northwestern. And one of the things he does is he studies how people narrate their life stories. And so he calls people in the office, research subjects, and he asks them over four hours, tell me about your high points, your low points, your turning points. And half the people cry. At the end of the four hours, he hands them a check to compensate them for their time. And a chunk of those people push back the check and say, I'm not taking money for this afternoon. This has been one of the best afternoons of my life. And the point is, I have a quote in the book from Studs Turkle, nobody has ever asked them about their life story. And they need, they love expressing themselves. If anybody in this room asks people about their life story, who were you in high school and how has that changed? Like, where'd you grow up and what was your childhood like? People love to tell you. And my experience, and I'll see if it jibes with yours, if I respectfully ask somebody about their life story, how often do they say, none of your damn business? Zero. Zero times in my life. People are dying to tell you their story. So at the time, time, there's this hostility which is out there. There's also, in my experience, a longing to connect. And so I try to convert all political conversations into storytelling conversations. So I don't ask people, what do you believe? I ask people, how'd you come to believe this? And then they're telling me about their values or somebody who influenced them. And so getting people in story narrative mode is like a way to diffuse all that political hostility. One final story in there is, I read about this from a, in a book called You're Not Listening by a Woman named Kate Murphy. And she describes a focus group leader who was um, hired by grocery stores to try to understand why people go to the grocery store late at night. And she could have asked the focus group, why do you go to the grocery store late at night? Instead, she said, tell me about the last time you went to the grocery store after 11 p.m. And there was one woman in the focus group, and she hadn't spoken the whole time. And she said, well, I'd smoked a joint, and I needed a menage a trois with me, Ben and Jerry. Uh, and and so, she, so that was a story, an insight into her life. Like, a little story there. Is your experience like mine that when you've given them a chance to tell their life story, they will... They're delighted to do that?
0: Well, my next book consists of talking to people about how they came to this country yeah. and the beautiful, revelatory, sometimes shocking stories they tell, and the number of times they say, you know, no one ever talks to me about this. Yeah. We're all, you know, mind blowing. Yeah. People become them them selves fully yeah. when you ask them to explain themselves in a non-adversarial receptive soaking it all in kinda of way and you can tell because the energy gins up as they're getting to this part and oh you're gonna like this and they, you, know, right. you can see them amping up as they are getting to the parts that still even after years delight them surprise them excite them to tell another person so yeah i mean one of the great gifts of being a reporter is getting to experience that at all never mind to do it hundreds and hundreds of times over and over again it's
1: great yeah and anybody can do that i mean another person i met writing this book is a guy named nick epley who's a social psychologist at the university of Chicago. And he knows, because he's a social psychologist, that people, more than anything else, love to connect. That's the thing that produces happiness and joy. And so he's riding his commuter train up to Chicago to work, and he looks around the the commuter car, and there's nobody talking to each other. They're all on their screens with their earbuds in. And so he's a social psychologist, so the next several months he pays people to talk to strangers on the commuter train. And then he interviews them after they get off, and they all say this was a fantastic ride this was more fun than anything i i I have in my normal commute and this is true of introverts and extroverts and so we underestimate how much people want to talk we underestimate how fun it'll be we underestimate how people want to go deep and so one of the ways writing this book has changed my life is i still will occasionally put in headphones when i'm tired or really want to work there's a trick Gwen Eiffel taught me that you don't have to listen to music, just put in the headphones. But now I talk to people on planes and trains a lot more. I wouldn't do it on New York subway, there are limits. But, uh, <laughs> but like, I flew two days ago from Miami to L.A., and I met a guy who used to be a rock star in an emo band, then he was in the cast of Spider-Man on Broadway, and then he was, um, he got into tech, and now he was a, an interior designer he comes onto the plane carrying all this stuff he'd gotten from the Salvation Army store in Key West, Florida. Uh, he had a boat in his lap that he was going to put in a pub somewhere. And it was a great conversation. If it had not been for this book, I would have just said some tattooed his- hipster sitting next to me. But instead, I, I had a, it's, I'll remember that. I don't know whatever book I was reading, but way better to talk to strangers.
0: Earlier on in the conversation, you referred to transformation change a journey in your own life and people who think i know you better than i do would say to me hey you know david brooks what's going on with david brooks <laughs> and i'd say i don't know but it's interesting isn't it because because of the life you lead it happens in public which also makes it more complicated, I would
1: think. Yeah. it's, it's more My wife is somewhere in the room. We'll pull her up. She can tell this story. I decided at some point it's going to be in public. I wrote a book called The Second Mountain, who came out four years ago, and it was going to be a, about how to make big commitments in life. And I wasn't in the first draft. There was no autobiography. And then the, my reader said, no, you have to be in this book. And so I described what had been a hard season in my life Uh, and the various ways that it changed me. Uh, You know, I went through just a hard time with loss of a marriage and loss of kids. And I mean, my kids didn't. I wouldn't lose them. They went away to college. And so I came across this saying from Paul Tillich that moments of suffering interrupt your life and remind you that you're not the person you thought you were, that they carve through what you thought was the floor of the basement of your soul, and they reveal a cavity below, and they carve through that floor, and they reveal a cavity below. So you just see into depths of yourself you didn't know. And... When you see into those depths, you realize only spiritual and emotional food will fill those depths. And so I had to go on a journey to figure out, how do you fill those depths? A lot of it was messy, and a lot of it happened because I read a column out in public or in the book. It was a process, and it's still a process. But I decided that, maybe just because I'm material, but I I also thought for the good of readers, that I was going to do this in public. I was not going to hide from this and the advantage that i hoped would arise out of it was that it would you know show that you know you can you can be open and vulnerable about the things you're going through in this life and people will hold you Uh, and you will come out the other side and you will have deeper friendships and i will say when that book came out four years ago most of my books the readership reflects the audience of books which is 60 percent women 40 percent guys with that book, I would be on a signing line. And I'd look down the line. I'd see nine guys and a woman, eight guys and a woman, and there were a lot of guys. I realized in that time I could become a second career as a CEO whisperer, because <laughs> there there were a lot of guys who had nobody to talk to, and they would say, "Hey, can we have a phone relationship? I want to. I, I have some things I'm trying to work through," and because I had been open and vulnerable, then they felt permission to like. Be open and vulnerable with me. And so I think it's particularly true of guys in this case that the willingness to like be who you are in public, I think that it was, a, it was like, oh, yeah, we can all do that. And so it, you're right. that I would get that from people, what the heck are you going through? Because it's ugly. <laughs> but it was part of the process of becoming a little more fully human.
0: Well, along with reading you, periodically I read about you. And I got to tell you, I saw some crazy stuff in the pages of newspapers and magazines. And by crazy stuff, I mean not that David was crazy, but that these articles seemed intrusive, speculative, odd. I couldn't imagine them being written about somebody else. And I also said, man, I hope I never have an article like this written about me. Does it go with the territory? that you open yourself for this kind of punishment when you decide you're going to show yourself?
1: I think so in in this climate. When I first got my job at the Times, Gail Collins, who was the editorial page editor at that point who hired me, said, you think you have a lot of friends in media. You're about to learn you don't have many friends in media. (laughs) Because frankly, being a Times columnist puts you in a posture that people want to take shots at. Uh, And so my skin had thickened in the first six months of that job. And so that was what it is. That doesn't mean it's pleasant to have those articles written about you, but at the end of the day you know they're not true. And that makes you sympathize for like Joe Biden, Barack Obama, like whoever these really public figures are, who have mountains of nonsense written about them, most of which is completely speculative untrue. I've had the chance to interview these guys. And when you do real reporting, you get a sense of what's actually going on in their, in a White House or in their lives. And then when you read some of the stuff that's written, you think it's just pure imagination. And whenever I really know, have direct knowledge of somebody, and then I read about that person in the media, I think to myself, sometimes we just stink because <laughs> we are not telling the truth about what that person is going through. And so in my own experience, which is like a one one thousandth of their experience, it hurt. It it was traumatic to, like, have bad things written about you. But on the end of the day, I knew it was not true. And the root fact is, for every one nasty piece, I had lots and lots of people saying supportive things and being nice to me and and buying my books and reading the stuff and watching the news hour. So it was more or less easy to marginalize the haters, as Taylor and I would say. Taylor Swift, that's a reference. (laughs) But writing about the
0: balance of payments with China or the price of energy is, at the end of the day, a lot easier than writing about yourself because we know the steps to that dance and there's a way to do it that meets people's expectations and doesn't get you in that kind of trouble, doesn't get you intrusive, speculative meanness
1: in it. In yeah, way. but what, what's the problem in our society with all the re- due respect to the people at the APEC summit over here in San Francisco? It's probably not the balance of payments in China that's the real problem in our society. The real problem in our society is the lack of connection. The real problem in our society is estrangement from each other. It's the depersonalization of life in general. And so I'm, if I'm going to write about what I think is the real problem in our society, it's very hard to write about personalism in a way that's impersonal. And so I was more or less dragged into it, into writing to the extent, I mean, the books, The Second Mountain had way more personal stuff than this does, but I had to show how I was living through the crisis the country was going through. And so I was not writing about it from some abstract, detached, foreign correspondent perspective. I was saying, we're going through this crisis of disconnection where we just don't know how to deal with each other well. And I happen to be a guy who grew up in this, as I described earlier, a relatively aloof manner. And so I was like everybody else. And I often say that my whole career is based on the fact that I'm a pretty average guy with above average communication skills. And so if I'm going through something, it's probable that lots of people in America are going through it. And sure enough, when you look at the statistics around the country and you meet people, what you just said earlier, nobody's ever asked me a story. And so I want to go through life a little more as an illuminator. And some of these illumination stories are very mundane, like the, guy, the girl whose teacher told her that she thought before she spoke. But when you see the apex of life, the most beautiful things in life, they're moments of deep seeing. And so there's this book I read about a year or two ago called Lost and Found by a woman named Catherine Schultz. And she had this dad, a guy named Isaac, who had survived the Holocaust and he sounded like the wonderful guy. He was like voluble, warm, friendly, great dad, had opinions about everything, about the infield fly rule in baseball, whether apple cobbler is better than apple crisp. And so he just sounds like a wonderful guy. And then toward the end of his life, he just stops talking. Uh, nobody could show why, but he just stopped talking. And so on the final night of his life, he's in the hospice or hotel room or hospital room and the family is around him. And they all decide they're going to say the things they don't want to leave unsaid. And so they go around the room and each say what he meant to them. And Catherine Schultz, who writes this book says, I seldom saw my father cry, but for once I was glad I did. He was weeping as they were talking to him because he knew at that second and maybe for the most important and the final time of his life, he knew where he stood in his family the center of the circle, the source and object of our abiding love. That is just a guy who died beautifully seen. And so that is what humanity is at its most beautiful. And so to try to describe that and try to hold it up for us all to see strikes me as a a worthwhile thing to do because it gives us something to shoot for, a way of being in the world to aim for and to aspire to. And that's the kind of thing I needed to read and I th- hope that that's the kind of story that a lot of people say, yeah, I resonate with that, I-, I would like to be like that, or I have had experiences like that. And that's the profoundest essence of being human. And so it seemed like a fitting subject to be writing about, it, even if it does involve like, writing sometimes in a moralistic way.
0: Is there a terrible paradox between this lack of communication, this loneliness this nation of strangers, increasingly, and the belief on the part of many people that they've got you all figured out. And by you, I mean the big you. I can't tell you how many times people have said, well, you are, and they list a set of attributes, and I think, well, no, that's nothing like me, but they think they've sized me up because of one or two data points and they've, then they've built a whole "me" around me, yeah, right. and I think, well, no, but there's this sort of brusque, confident assertion that these people walk through life with that's almost as a barrier to that knowing yeah. and real seeing that you described for us in the book.:
1: Yeah, and so that's called stacking. When you learn one fact about a person, then you make a whole series of assumptions based on that one fact. NPR. Oh, I know about NPR. I know all those NPR people. They're a bunch of crunchy granola people. Um, that's fair, I guess. No, no, i good. kidding. Um, or um, you're a Trump supporter. Oh, I know. You must be. A, I have a pickup truck. You do this. You hunt. You, you know. And I heard about a lady who was at a Trump rally, and if I can remember this correctly, she was a lesbian biker who converted to Sufi Islam after surviving a plane crash. So, like, as one does. Yeah. Like, what stereotype is she fitting into here? And so the book, the subtitle of the book is Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. But if I want to be more accurate, it would have been Hearing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Heard. Because in getting to know somebody, you have to ask them questions. So you start out with a, you know, simple questions that won't be too invasive. Like I, I, I'll start with, where would you grow up? Because I travel a lot, so I've probably been there. Or how would you get your name? And you learn about people's heritage and stuff like that. Once I asked a group of people, Tell me about your favorite unimportant thing about yourself, and so we in the conversation, I learned that this theologian who I really admire watches an enormous amount of trashy TV. Uh, and that was interesting to learn that about him, and it came from that question. Then when you get to know somebody, you can ask them bigger questions: uh, If this five years is a chapter in your life, what 's the chapter about? And then you get to talking. I was at a dinner with a political scientist who 's eighty. And he said, I probably got one last project in my life. What should it be? And that was just a big question. And so we talked about his interests. We talked about dying. We talked about how to handle old age. And the conversation went on for like two hours. And you know, one of the top topics I like is how do your ancestors show up in your life? Because we've all been influenced by our heritage. And so if you ask people that, then they think, well, I've got 5,000 years of Jewish history, or I've got centuries of African-American history in my background, and it's caused me to be like this. And it's just a fun conversation. And it's those moments of taking what could be an average conversation and turning it into a memorable conversation that is just important. And then the final thing I've been thinking about this last couple days is the power of small moments. Just as a cash register at at the supermarket. I'm really, I've been reflecting like a, I'm now in the airport, so I buy coffee at the airport or something like that. And how much it really influences me if the person hustling to, at Starbucks smiles at me and looks at me or doesn't. And it seems like this trivial thing, and it probably matters a little, I hope to him or her, whether I smile and look. But even those little moments of interaction can be surprisingly powerful in affecting your mood. And so being warm and open in those, those little greetings has a weird power, I found. But I, I don't know how to explain that yet, the power of minor moments. We have
0: some terrific questions from the audience. How has reality TV affected relationships in the 21st century? But why don't you broaden it out to media in a, in a broader sense? Certainly, yeah. we can kick off from reality yeah. TV.
1: Unlike my theologian friend, I don't watch a lot of reality TVs. But uh, from what I see, some of it is horrible (laughs) horrific self-absorbed performatives and i guess i'd say how has media hurt relationships i do think it has made well a we spend less time with each other b i definitely think it's hurt conversational skills and i think it's caused a lot of younger people to give up on marriage i often tell my students they're basically disillusioned with it i tell my students your career will make you somewhat happy But the thing that social science shows is four times more powerful in determining your life happiness is not your career. It's going to be your marriage and your intimate friendships, whether you're married or not or whether you have an intimate set of friends. So while you're here in school, you should really be spending a lot of time thinking how do I build a solid core of intimate friendships and how do I build a great marriage? And some of that is just basic skills. I ran into a blog of a woman who's like how to keep your marriage healthy and I liked some of the advice she gave. It was like, they tell you never go to bed mad. Sometimes just go to bed. Uh, <laughs> you wake up in the morning, you'll feel better. You can make waffles and it'll, all, it'll be better. Another is boast about your spouse and have them overhear you boasting. Uh, another was, if you're going to bitch about your spouse, bitch to his mom and not to yours. Because his mom will forgive him, yours never will. So, uh, um, and I think the basic so I guess the sexist way to say this is old wives wisdom. I think now that it's become as performative, people may not have that kind of wisdom that you were probably existing in your neighborhood. And the other thing that's happened is that, especially in the dating relationship, there's just too much choice. There's thousands and thousands of choices you can swipe on. I think it damages the ability to really connect with one or two people. And I will be, I think I described this in the book, I'll sit at a bar killing some time and you would call it sad guy drinking alone. I call it reporting. Uh, And and so in New York or Washington, because the tables are close together, you overhear all the conversations around you, and there will be commonly a guy out on a first date with a woman. He's blathering on minute after minute after minute. She's looking at the sky, hoping she'll spontaneously combust so she can get out of this date. And I want to take my fork and ram it into his neck and say... Just ask her a question once. Just ask her a question, and he has no clue. He's like... And so in all those ways, I'm glad I'm not in this world of, of dating online these days. Or... I
0: keep hearing that the center of the country feels ignored by the elite, intellectuals on the coasts. How can we show them differently that they matter, that
1: we care? Ah, who cares? Um, and... LAUGHTER <laughs> um,
0: uh, <laughs> well you can say that you can say yeah. that to this uh, crowd yeah. no.
1: you know we the world needs to pay more attention to palo alto that's my room um, uh, <laughs> i will say you know in reporting trips over these years to the midwest i used to hear the phrase you guys think we're flyover country maybe once a day now i hear it nine ten times a day And so that sense that you don't see us is real. Here I'll do a little media criticism, which I rarely do. And so when I started my career briefly as a police reporter in Chicago, some of the other older reporters had never been to college. And they were high school working class guys, and reporting was in those days a bit of a working class profession. Fast forward 20 years, and it's not only that you can't get a job without a college degree, you pretty much have to have an elite college degree. And or graduate education or graduate education. And, you know, when I look around the New York Times newsroom, Harvard Crimson, Yale Daily News, Harvard Crimson, Yale Daily News. Uh, And I was at a little conversational group in D.C. about three months ago. And there were eight of us. And we were all talking. And not only had the seven of the eight, I went to public school, high school, but I went to a private elementary school. The seven of the eight had all gone to prep schools. And so I'm like, are we really sorting this early? You know, I remember once my first year was teaching at Yale, I asked my students to write their political opinions. And they invariably described their high school political opinions. And the first 10 papers, like five, they were schools from Brearley, Collegiate, Dalton, these New York prep schools. And I'm like, this is diversity at Yale. we got some Upper East Side kids. we got some Upper West Side kids. Uh, and and um, so the sorting of our meritocracy starts super early and then i'm reading a very good book by a guy named paul tuff right now on the meritocracy and he says well how do firms especially the consulting finance firms how do they hire well if you didn't go to the big three harvard Yale, and princeton you're out of luck and it's not only that you've got to have played lacrosse you've got to have played one of these rich people sports and so basically all these jobs they ask all these interview questions where'd you go to school Really, the only thing they're really measuring for is how much did your parents make? Because these three big schools and all the top 25 schools basically have, or many of them have more kids from the top 1% of earners than the bottom 60%. And so they're massively sorting so the rich kids go into these places. And then the financial companies massively support so the rich kids of the rich kids go to these countries. And it's basically they're sorting for who had the wealth to be prepared in a certain way and to fit in in a certain way. And it's the opposite of what we thought the meritocracy was going to be.
0: Some observers and writers have called it hoarding opportunity. And I think it's a really apt phrase because before we even test out in the arena who's got it and who doesn't, there's been a certain capture of, of the good stuff, the goodies. I believe the transformation in your life grew out of your spiritual transformation and marriage to your wife. Could you comment on this?
1: Again, we should bring Anne down here. Yeah, then those things happened together. I'd grown up in a Jewish home going to Christian schools, and so I had the Jewish story in my head and I had the Christian story in my head. And so I say I was raised religiously bisexual. <laughs> but it, it didn't matter because I didn't believe in God, so I, it was just nice to have these two stories in my head and with respect for these two different traditions. And then I think gradually... My conception of the world was inadequate to the world as I experienced it. Which is to say that the world, my conception of the world was as a a material thing with atoms. And I became more aware that the universe is not neutral, that there is a force of love in the world. And if anybody knows New York, you know one of the second ugliest place in New York is Penn Station. And the first ugliest spot is the subway station next to Penn Station. And I was there one day about 10 years ago. And I have this sense that all the people in this station have souls, that they have some piece of themselves with no size, weight, or shape because of infinite value and dignity. And all around me there are souls that are soaring or some souls that are sick, some souls that are yearning. But these are just not material atoms. These are souls. And then for me, it was a journey from believing that humans have souls To believing there's a god who gave them their souls and to which we will return and that's when jesus walked into the subway car and said come follow me no that did not happen (laughs) Um, (laughs) but i was on a journey and i learned when you're on a journey people give you books and so i got about 700 books over the course of a couple months 350 of which were mere christianity by c.s lewis and so it was just like I was entering a new world. And I had no clue what world I was entering in. And I knew uh, this Christian woman, so I started emailing her, like, what's, what's grace? And like, how do I earn grace? She's like, no, nah, it doesn't really work that way. And so we have these emails, and I learn about it. And suddenly, without any dramatic moment, I try to describe it as riding in a train. And I'm sitting in a train, and everyone is sort of around, reading the newspaper, sipping coffee, and you look out the window and you've realized you've crossed a boundary and you've left the land of atheism and you're into the land of belief. No more dramatic than that. And then I'd figure out what kind of belief and, and all that. And so uh, I ran into St. Augustine and not physically I read about him. I read about uh, Dorothy Day. I read a book called A Severe Mercy by Sheldon Van Alken. I read a lot of C.S. Lewis. And that sort of gave substance to what I was yearning for and spiritually experiencing. And so I thought the Christian world was, you read C.S. Lewis, you read a guy named Tim Keller who was a pastor in New York who died earlier this year, and you enter this world of St. Augustine and Dorothy Day. And I told a friend who's out here in the Bay Area that when I entered the Christian world, this is what I thought the Christian world was. And he says to me, oh, you thought it was all the shire. You thought it was only the hobbits, but there's a big Christian world out there. And unfortunately, my joke is becoming a Christian in 2013 is like investing in the stock market in 1929, because Christian nationalism has now swept over large parts of the world that I didn't know anything about. That's a, a short version of the journey. It's still ongoing, and it's had its moments of joyous spiritual connection with God, long periods of absence of God. And one of the things that helped me was this guy I've quoted before tonight, was a guy named Frederick Buechner. And he was a a writer, a novelist, who became a Christian in midlife or at some point in his life. And he says, you wake up in the morning and you should ask yourself, can I believe that all over again? And then he says, and then read the the New York Times and ask yourself, can I believe all that again in the existence of a God? And he says, if your answer is 10, 10 days out of 10 is yes, I believe it, then you don't experience belief as I understand it. Your answer five days out of the ten should be, I don't really believe it today. But he says, on those days when you answer yes, you should answer with joy and great laughter. And so Beekner gave me permission to live within my doubts and to still persist.
0: Sometimes this habit of seeing of others and taking the time is easier for those over 70 years old. For one thing, there's less to lose. Can the elderly teach the young? And how?
1: That's a very good question. Um, I think in general, we get out of our own way as we get older. And the studies, if you want to do it in scientific terms, people become more agreeable. Uh, The personality trait of agreeableness. Agreeableness is just being kind. I think people become a little kinder on average. There still are cranky old men, I'm sure. My wife and I are going to teach a course in Chicago this spring for people between age 50 and 70, and it's how to think about the last 30 of your life. Not that we know the answer to that, but hopefully we'll have some thoughts. So I have been interviewing people who take courses similar to this of how to think about the last 30 of their life. And the first course, that really prominent course that taught this was here at Stanford. And I I interviewed a woman who attended that course called the Distinguished Careers Institute, and her name is Ann Kenner. And Anne had been a federal prosecutor, first in New York and then in San Francisco. And she took this course and she decided, I'm going to do things in the last third of my life that I know completely nothing about. And now she's a playwright. And she's wrote a play about Anne Boleyn, one of Henry VIII's wives. And it was being read. at Don't tell me how it ends. (laughs) 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 Sorry. (laughs) So they live happily ever after. Uh, she, you know, she updated the story. Um, uh, it was being read by a San Francisco theater company. And she tells me, I'm 65. It can fail. Who gives a crap? Like, and so that liberation uh, is, I think, part of wisdom. The second thing that I learned from people who've been through that class, I have this efficiency clock in my head. And so if I'm going through a gas station, and I'm going to pump my tank full of gas. I think to myself, oh, I've got 90 seconds here. I can get two emails done. That's horrible. That's horrible for getting to know someone. A lot of the people over 70 have gotten through that rush, rush, rush. But the final thing I learned interviewing people in these classes. So people come to Stanford, they come to Chicago or Notre Dame, wherever. They spend a year on campus and they take some courses mostly with people like themselves in their age group. And to have 30 new friends at age 65 is an awesome experience for them. But then uh, as equally awesome is they take a lot of classes spread throughout the university. And so they're taking classes with 20-year-olds. And the friendships that develop between a 65-year-old or a 70-year-old and a 20-year-old are, as they describe it, amazing friendships. And there's something about that cross-generational pollinization that is just super powerful. And I think the kids, we all need grandparents. And if you can have a grandparent who is not related to you, but is like a wise older person just can sit with you and talk without being pompous, then it's just a powerful relationship. I know a guy named Mark Friedman who works on these intergenerational relationships. He takes money from AmeriCorps, which is young people volunteering, and Senior Corps, which is older people volunteering, and he merges the budgets and he merges the two populations. And it's just a tremendously powerful thing that our society does not do enough of. Not a question, but thank you so much for your
0: column about your best friends' mental health struggles and suicide. It was your best column ever, and I urge you to seek it out. It's, It's
1: in a chapter in
0: the book. It's in the book. And let's end kind of where we began. When first meeting someone you haven't met before, what's the best question to ask them?
1: Well, first... When you meet someone you haven't met before, the most important thing to do is look at them with generous eyes. Because it's the first gaze is going to tell them, I value you, you're a priority to me, you're a person to me. And so those fundamental assertions are made by your eyes before any words come out of your mouth. And Iris Murdoch, who's a hero of mine, who's a philosopher and novelist, she said, our goal should be to cast the just and loving attention on others that attention is fundamentally the moral act. And so it's what we attend to. And the way we attend to the world determines our way of being in the world. So if you look at the world with critical eyes, you will find flaws. And if you look at the world with fearful eyes, you'll see danger. But if you look at the world with generous eyes, you'll see people doing the best they can. And so it's that emotional connection with the eye is the most important thing. And then as for... Getting to know someone, like I said before, I'm not shy about asking about childhoods. I'm not shy about asking about names. I want to know their family, their ethnic heritage. And then another thing you can do is find out what they're proud of. And people love to talk about what they're proud of. So if a guy's wearing a shirt with his kid's travel soccer team, ask about the team. So what you're doing in those first moments of conversation, every conversation exists on two levels. There's what we're putatively talking about, And then there's the undercurrent of emotion that's flowing between us as we're speaking. And so in those first moments, just demonstrate curiosity and respect. And there's a great book called Crucial Conversations. And the authors write, in any conversation, respect is like air. When it's present, nobody thinks about it. When it's absent, it's all anybody can think about. And so if I'm showing you the respect of curiosity, it almost doesn't matter what I ask you you'll feel, oh, this person is curious about me. I'm I'm a person of this person. Then it'll flow. And Ann and I have friends in D.C. who say, we like our friends to be lingerable. We like them to be the kind of good company you just want to hang around with after dinner. So that's just a beautiful way of being in the world. People are lonely, and loneliness is such a paradox because nobody wants to be lonely. And when there's a crowd of lonely people, you think, well, just get together. But I think there's nervousness, people are afraid, and people just don't know how to do it. And so my little piece of this is the social skills, here's how you do it.
0: David Brooks is the author of How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. Please thank David Brooks. I'm Ray Suarez. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.